The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Hey, Rockheads, spit out your bazooka and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 519 with guests Brad Abrams, Bob Dempsey, and Lance Olson, recorded live Monday, January 4th, 2010. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms, WPF, Silverlight, and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And now... Man who put spot remover on his dog and got sued by Stephen Wright, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl and Richard. Yes, sir. Hey, man. What's happening? Not too much. Uh, I got a little story for you. So I'm down at Hannafin's Pub. This is an Irish pub right downstairs from the studio. I know it's dangerous, but... Yep. Uh, so I'm sitting there and I'm talking with Mr. Hannafin and we're just, you know, there's not a whole lot of people in there, but I feel the bar vibrate and I think, oh, that's interesting. Somebody's got a, wow, somebody's got a really powerful cell phone and it's not stopping either. And I look around, there's nobody's got their cell phone on the bar, but it's really vibrating. Okay. So, so I don't know what it is, but it goes on and on and I'm th- now I'm thinking, all right, the dishwasher is right under the bar. That's what's going on. Dishwashers vibrating the bar. No. So this goes on for about, I don't know, half an hour, and then people clear out because it's closing time, and, and I'm almost done, but I'm sitting there. So now, like, most everybody is gone, and we hear this, uh, and I say music, but it's really like, <laughs> coming from the basement right below the bar. And like it's like thrash this metal. screaming death thrash yeah, exactly. So there's a band that's rehearsing in the, in the basement, and uh, it turns out they they generate so much volume that it vibrates at a ridiculous amount. The floor, the bar, the whole thing, and people are walking around like looking around, like wondering what the hell's going on. So, so the joke is that yeah, this is our next song is called Roar. <laughs> it's off our album. nice yeah all right anyway that's all i got let's get into better no framework all right yeah that's what music should sound like right there that's what you're saying ah well maybe not (laughs) um (laughs) it's a little better than anyway uh, today I'm talking about the system.windows.media.effects namespace. Oh. And uh, provides types that can be used to apply visual effects to bitmap images. And um, probably, you know, the, the one that people love the best is pixel shader and shader effect. Um, you know, the high-level shading language pixel shader is really, really cool. So the pixel shader class provides a managed wrapper around that HLSL pixel shader. Very cool stuff. So, you know, you might you might or might not be doing Silverlight stuff, and you may or may not be into effects yet. That may be a little bit low on your priority list, but I'm just telling you, when you go home tonight from work, open up Visual Studio 2010, Silverlight 4, even Silverlight 3, 
check out that pixel shader and make yourself some cool looking stuff. It'll just make you feel better. Um, it's just a feel good class. Nice. That's it. What do you got? This thing's made you feel good, has it? It makes you feel so good. <laughs> <laughs> You'll feel like saying, I hope not. Who's <laughs> <laughs> right. talking to us, Richard? Uh, Michael Clark says, Carl, comma, Richard, and co. Yeah. I was on vacation, so only just got to DNR episode 491. I wanted to thank you for the interview with Francesco Bellina. Ah, good one. When I was transitioning over from mainframe COBOL back in 2000 and 2001, his book, Programming Visual Basic 6.0, helped me over the hump by making sense out of a language within the IDE. Without him, I would have probably relapsed back to the dark side. Cue Darth Vader breathing noises. My copy of his book is literally falling apart at the seams because I made such heavy use of it. It still sits on my bookcase in a place of honor. Yeah. Thanks so much for Don and Rocks. I look forward to each episode. Well, good. Thanks, Mike. And we'll, uh, we'll be sending you out a mug. And if you've got any questions, concerns, or ideas, fire us an email, Don and Rocks at Franklin's.net. We'll send you a mug, too. You know, I noticed that, that Mike, you know, did this transition in 2000, 2001. So he was over to Visual Basic just in time for .NET to ship. Yeah. That's fun. Lucky. Well, but, you know, Francesco really is the VB conversion guy. He is. The yeah. guy. That was a very useful show for a lot of people, I'm guessing. I'm surprised how many folks are still out there using, that have apps that they're taking care of that are in the old VB. Yep. And uh, it's all good. It's all good. Our guests today are Bob Dimpsey, Lance Olson, and Brad Abrams. Bob is the product unit manager for the application server development platform, whose mission it is to establish the .NET framework as the essential platform for building and deploying composite applications and services. Technologies that this product unit ships are Windows Communication Foundation, Windows Workflow, Serialization for .NET, MSDTC, Remoting, and Asimax. He's worked on web services and specifically WCF, for five years at Microsoft. Previous to this, he has spent a dozen years focused on software performance for a number of key products at IBM, including WebSphere, IBM's Java Virtual Machines, OS2, and AIX. Graduated with a BS, MS, and PhD from the University of Illinois in Champaign-Urbana. Lance Olson is a group program manager building developer tools and runtimes for data on the SQL Server team at Microsoft. Lance was a founding member of the .NET Framework team, and has contributed to Microsoft's developer offerings for more than a decade with an emphasis on distributed computing involving data and services. He has an MBA from the University of Washington and a bachelor's in information systems from Weber State University. In 2003, Lance co-authored Network Programming for the .NET Framework. In his spare time, Lance enjoys time with his family, hiking, skiing, and fly fishing. Brad Abrams was a founding member of both the Common Language Runtime and .NET Framework teams at Microsoft Corporation, where he's currently the Product Unit Manager of the Application Framework team, which is responsible for delivering the developer platform that powers rich Internet applications and core innovations in the .NET Framework. Specific technologies owned by this team include parts of Silverlight, the Managed Extensibility Framework, or MEF, uh, Brad has been designing parts of the .NET Framework since 1998 when he started his framework design career building the BCL, the Base Class Library. Brad was also the lead editor on the Common Language Specification, the .NET Framework Design Guidelines, and the libraries in the ECMA ISO CLI standard. Welcome, guys. Yep, hello. Well, this is a, a, a interesting convergence of technologies here, but uh, we're not talking specifically about WCF or uh, or Silverlight. We're talking about OData, but uh, I think we need a little background. Bob, do you want to start start us off here? Yeah, let me give a little uh, history of services on .NET. Uh, back in um, .NET Framework 3.0, we introduced the Windows Communication Foundation, or WCF. Um, basically, the unified programming model for writing services. And these are basically contract-first ways to expose business logic either to the web or to the enterprise. 
Um, the basics of a, of a WCF service itself consists of, you know, an address and a binding and a contract, uh, and in general embraces both interoperability, so you could expose a service and have it consumed by uh, a web sphere at IBM or Oracle or Sun, or you can spo- expose it within your um, uh, enterprise and take advantage of more uh, proprietary protocols to get higher performance. Uh, WCF itself, as I say, some of the value props are the unified programming model, um, as well as being transport agnostic. What I mean by that is you can plug in HTTP, you can plug in uh, TCP, MSMQ, et cetera, et cetera. Also encoding agnostic. You can encode your messages, uh, you know, either using binary or an interoperable format. And finally, host agnostic. Um, it can run in IIS, it can run in NT service, it can run in your own uh, process. Um, on top of this base stack to expose web services, we provide security interoperable uh, transactions as well as reliability. Uh, so this, this was introduced in, in .NET Framework 3.0 and shouldn't be too new to uh, listeners. Um, a number of years back, the RESTful style of services uh, was becoming more and more popular. And REST has a lot of nice fundamentals, including um, ubiquity of exposing to the clients and kind of a simplified way to uh, uh, expose resources, if you will. WCF, being a unified programming model, wanted to embrace this architecture as well as the RPC-based architecture of, of the SOAPful services. And so in uh, 3.5, um, in .NET 3.5, we introduced uh, RESTful or WCF REST, if you will, uh, also known as Web HTTP services. What this allows is you to map a URI to a specific service and some query parameters along that so that you can expose services in a RESTful manner on the web. Mm-hmm. Um, we've enhanced this quite a bit in .NET 4 as well. Now, this is a very low-level and kind of a, a programming model, and recently both Brad and, and Lance's team have introduced um, higher-level programming models which make writing RESTful applications and end-to-end applications on Silverlight much easier to do. Uh, so I'll hand it over to them to kind of talk about what, what they've introduced to the WCF portfolio. So what I my team's been working on is a thing called data services, and what we found was that uh, I'm on the data team uh, here in the SQL business, and and we've been focused on uh, how people work with data in the context of their web services. And one of the things that we found was that there was a class of services where people would want to use. Um, data sets or collections uh, to basically pass amounts of data like object graphs of data back and forth between two endpoints. The kind of the typical use case for this would be you have a service that exposes some a data set uh, as a return um, property to some methods and they call that and get the data set down on the client and then bind to it and manipulate manipulate the data, make some changes and send that back up to the server and then merge those back into the database. And one of the things we found was that if we if we took uh, that class of services and instead of um, passing the data as a parameter, we actually said what we're going to do is model the service, uh, design the service to be the resource that you're programming against, we could do a bunch of interesting things. So, for example... Uh, paging is a common thing that people want to do uh, with data when they're returning it from services. And if we basically say, instead of calling, you know, get customers, uh, we can just uh, say there's a customer and you can do a certain set of operations against the customer, we could build in semantics uh, that apply to all sorts of, of uh, resources like paging. So we could say, there's a standard way to do skip, and there's a standard way to do take. And um, that uh, is what, kind of, I think, the basis, uh, that's the basis for what became uh, data services. And what we found is that for the sets of services that are resource-centric, uh, that's been a really powerful thing it, it, because it allows us to have a uniform way to work with all sorts of different types of, of data and associated logic um, and even build, you know, standard clients and um, standard libraries that work with that stuff. 
And I'm sorry, I just want to get a little clarification here. You said skip and take. This is about paging sets of data? You know, if you have like a, a catalog and you're trying to go through, you have 100 items in the catalog, you may want to, and you're on page two and you're doing 10 items per page, you could skip the first 10 and take the next 10. Right. And so if, if I was doing that with, a, with like custom service operations, I would um, have to define a parameter in each operation that says where skip and take exist. Right. Uh, uh, whereas if I have a, uh, with a, with a model-based approach, I can actually define semantics for specifying skip and take, and they can work against customers or orders or whatever other information I, I want to expose. It's got to be nothing more than just telling this is the order that things go in and here's the units of uh, pages. Yeah, you you can think of it uh, more along the lines of defining what you want the to be able to query. So you could say, I want to be able to query customer, and I'm going to write my business logic in those terms. So instead of instead of having a get customers by state method, I would say I'm going to going to expose customers, and then you could query customer by state or by zip or by address, and you can also page over those queries. So it's, it's a little bit different way of thinking about it. It's more resource-focused than operation-focused. Right, yeah. It's really about getting rid of a lot of repetitive methods. Exactly. Okay. Brad, I think it's your turn. Okay, great. So uh, I guess... Uh, uh, Ria services was the last one to ship, so we get to be the last one to go. That's all good. Right. Um, so we, Ria services, we took a little bit different approach to the problem. We didn't come into it thinking about services. What we came into thinking about is how do people build applications and how are they going to be building them in the future? Um, and we discovered that there's this emerging pattern uh, that we're calling a, a Ria application pattern where people build applications that have a uh, single app has some meaningful components that run on the server and on the client. It's sort of a hybrid app. It's not purely a server-based app, not purely a client-based app, but um, it's got code running in both places. Right. And there's lots of good reasons to put code in, in one place or the other. Um, but the fact that you have, have code in both places as part of the same app implies that you have to somehow communicate between those uh, and, and stitch that together as sort of a unifying whole. So... Um, the place Ria Services sort of a- approached it is um, how can we help you uh, kind of get rid of the plumbing involved in those experiences where you have to um, add a service reference, you have to update that service reference every time you touch the service, which when you're building an app is, is very frequently. Um, you have to worry about how to do validation um, both on the server and the client to make sure the data that the user's typing in is, is uh, kind of good data. Uh, you have to do authentication because data is very um, valuable. You want to make sure only the right people are seeing it. You want to be able to uh, kind of control that. Um, and then there's also this uh, kind of unit of work concept where you want to uh, be able to do a bunch of operations on the client and be able to send those in a batch up to the server and have those kind of succeed or fail and get the air conditions back on the on the client and be able to expose those. All of these things sound vaguely in common with each other, guys. Yeah. 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 yeah there's yeah. similarities. There's yeah. They just seem somehow, am I crazy? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, let me, uh, let me try to answer that question a little bit. I think one of the, one of the things we're introducing and that we rolled out at the PDC was uh, all of these are ways to write services. The, uh, certainly the WCF soap based RPC level services been a way, a way to write services for a long, long time. We've provided a low-level way to expose them in a restful manner. Um, real, uh, data services uh, come at the problem in a different way, and that's if you start with data and want to expose the model, if you will, out to the web or out to a, a, a model yeah. uh, way to a URI, which is which is indeed a service. And in fact, real service data services are built on top of WCF, so the underlying plumbing is the same. Um, but it's a different type of programming pattern. The RIA services, uh, on the other hand, is a more prescriptive pattern. And if uh, you're building a Silverlight application, uh, for instance, this would be a great place to start if you want an end-to-end, tightly coupled um, uh, pattern for building uh, a service-based uh, client-server application. So in a sense, they are, there are overlaps. And one of the reasons why we built all these on top of the WCF plumbing was because of these overlaps. The power of... Uh, 
the channel model and the service model that WCF provides is a fully extensible set of uh, points. So you can put in different transports, different formats, different protocols, as well as behaviors uh, in the service model. Uh, all of these things are available or will be available in time to the RIA and data service writer, um, which will provide the power of WCF with the simplicity of these higher-level programming models. Okay. Okay. <laughs> We're waiting for that next segue. Yeah, this uh, this sounds good, but it doesn't sound easy either. Well, by easy, I, I mean, I, I think one of the things we did, as Bob alluded to, with RIA services is, um, you know, we, we actually... Uh, at the PDC, we released our drop that was uh, when we that was is built 100% on WCF. Uh, uh, now, uh, RIA service literally is a, a WCF service, right? And so we consequently we rebranded it to be uh, WCF RIA services to to indicate the technology change that we did. It was interesting as we rolled this change out to customers. Sometimes customers said to me, "Oh no, it's a." Uh, I, I don't like that. I don't like that it's that you're built on WCF or it's WCF RIA services. I'm like, well, oh, why not? What's what's the problem? Like, well, because you know WCF is complicated. And I right. think, oh, okay. So I've got I totally got that under control for you because what we've done is is as Bob said, we've we've kind of hidden all the plumbing associated with WCF. So it's all there if you need that power. It's there, but we've default made a, a bunch of meaningful defaults. Um, not in terms of default web config, but in terms of what we uh, what we what we have by default with RIA services. Uh, kind of it, it takes the last four years of best practices from deploying WCF services into account. Yeah, I would add that um, the customer feedback on RIA services so far has been overwhelmingly positive as far as the ease of use of getting it up and running um, for an application, especially a Silverlight application. Sure, and that's always been the strength of the RIA services approach. Is this is really taking on those things that we were trying to do by hand, and it was hard. Uh, yes, and I, I think the point is none of that goes away. Right. Uh, what's now allowed is that's built on top of a very strong uh, infrastructure. So if you want to uh, take your uh, RIA service and expose an OData endpoint, and Lance will tell what an OData endpoint is, right. that's available to you. Um, however, you're not mandated to go do that but we're not closing that door off for you either. So we're now to call it WCF Data Services, and it's using WCF, and uh, and OData is the protocol, which is what you just alluded to. Um, do, do, do we think that a lot of people are going to know what OData is? I'll, I'll take this one. So um, for the longest time, we didn't have a name for it. We called it the, uh, this is a great one, the... Um, the ADO.NET data services extensions and conventions to the Atom Publishing uh, <laughs> Protocol. Oh, that's a mouthful, huh? That's awesome. <laughs> that's great, isn't it? And the, the acronym <laughs> comes out as Ugarada. It just rolls right off the tongue. It just rolls right off. <laughs> um, wow. So what we found, though, was that uh, there were a lot of different products uh, and mainly our focus had been inside of Microsoft, but even some outside, starting to implement the protocol. And in fact, uh, you know, two, of the, two of the big ones that have implemented it are SharePoint, and then we have a, a client called PowerPivot that plugs into Excel in Excel 2010. And at that point, you had SharePoint and Excel talking to each other, and you really didn't even have... Uh, it wasn't clear that, I mean, just because they were using the you know, ADO.NET Data Services <laughs> Protocol, I won't say the whole name, uh, didn't really matter. They were just talking to each other uh, because that format was useful to them. And that's kind of what led us to saying we need to create a standalone way to talk about the protocol because uh, the, pro the approach we've taken with the protocol is what we believe is enabling a, a broad set of integration uh, in terms of how systems work with data. And uh, we've seen a lot of just natural uptake because it, it allows you to, it's very simple. It's a, you know, Atom Pub uh, based protocol, textual uh, on top of HTTP. One of the core design principles we had with the protocol was really to invent as little as possible and just use all that's there already in the web between HTTP and, and Atom Pub and JSON. 
Right. And so, uh, yeah, I think it's going to be, you know, if the, if the last 12 months has been any indication, I think it's going to be very, uh, very widely adopted just because it, it enables a new kind of integration between systems that we haven't seen before. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik, who bring you the Telerik extensions for ASP.NET MVC. The extensions bring rich UIs to your MVC application. These are just announced, and this time they're not standard web forms controls tailored for MVC, but native, built-from-the-ground-up MVC components. There's three important things to remember. One, they're pure ASP.NET MVC components. Two, they're based on jQuery. And third, and this is the best part, they're completely open source. Just go to www.telerik.com slash MVC for more information and online demos. Make sure you thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. Now, you said it's textual. Is it essentially, is, is XML in there somewhere? Uh, you, can either, uh, you can either get results back as AtomPub, which is an XML-based format, or as JSON, depending on what your client needs are. So you can use it. And, uh, yeah. Hmm. Well, I don't know if you consider JSON to be textual as well. I mean, they are, they're all ones that you could basically pull up, you know, a protocol debugger or, or even just hit them in the browser and you could see what you're getting back. Yeah, largely human readable. Right. Well, and, and this has been, in, we've seen this intersection coming for a while, and, and I hate to admit this to you guys, but I pretty much admit it to anybody else, but I still refer to it as a story because everybody knows what I'm talking about when mm. I call it a story. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, the team um, never loses a chance to point that out to me whenever they can. We still call it a story every, every once in a while. <laughs> well, it's just because ADO.net data services, when you plug that into a search engine, you can yeah. get anything. Like, it, it's it's search-resistant. <laughs> oh, well. But WCF Data Services, I guess, is a little bit better. Yeah. And and I mean, I guess the question is, is it really WCF? Yeah. I, I, so when we first uh, started, it wasn't. It was um, we had a different extension for the service, and we had a different implementation that really didn't share anything with WCF. Uh, this was in the kind of the early prototypes. And we went and met, I met, met with Bob's team and spent some time working with them on, on it. And we decided to, uh, to actually make it a lot more WCF-like. Uh, one of the things we did was we shared the, the extensions. So every data service that you create <coughs> using the .NET platform is a .SBC service. And um, we extended the same, like, ad service reference dialog so that in Visual Studio you get the same experience that you would get with any other WCF service. Hmm. So uh, in those senses, uh, and the fact that we, uh, we plumbed it such that it actually runs through the, the activation path of the WCF stack. Uh, so in that sense, yes, it, it absolutely is a WCF service. There's more that we have planned to do, I think, to more deeply integrate it. So, for example, today, the service operations that uh, you run aren't full WCF service operations, and uh, we would like them to be, and that's uh, something that Bob and I are uh, focused on, uh, on designing between the two teams. If, if, you, if you think of the uh, WCF stack as first having a programming model on top and then a service model layer, which is... Think of it as a, as a pipeline where you can plug in uh, behaviors and has a bunch of behaviors that are already there. And then at the bottom, uh, channel model, which has, um, uh, you know, deserialization, if you will, uh, and then, um, well, actually deserialization, deserialization's up a little higher, but channel model has basically the encoding of the message and then sending and receiving the message and the channels, much like the TCPIP stack. Um, the architecture of WCF data services, or Astoria, as you affectionately called it, um, comes in through the web HTTP programming model, if you will, web HTTP services programming model using the same attributes and .svc files. And then when it gets to the service model, it kind of forks and does its own dispatch layer. Right. Uh, so, so in a sense, uh, it goes through its own kind of dispatch layer and then comes together as kind of a, assuming HTTP as the channel. So there's a there's certainly a, a fork in the implementation of the architecture of the code. Um, that being said, these are WCF services, and as Lance notes, we we do want to um, align these things even closer in their implementation. We're seeing what can be done there. Well, and, and to me, 
the key strength here would be, you know, WCF has always had that ability to go deep. So when you suddenly had to do encryption, it was just a modification to the endpoint. Like it was very much a configuration based tuning mm-hmm. of your communications. And that to me was its strength. It just was intimidating to get started with. Yeah, that's one of the, one of the things about WCF that, that, that is definitely one of the positive things. You write your business logic one time and then you can expose it. And what we, what we see that resonates quite a bit with customers is, is they'll write something and expose it broadly over HTTP. And then they can turn around and take that exact same service, uh, just change a few things in config, use a binary format in TCPIP, and now have a much faster enterprise-ready well, service. I think Richard's point was that just change a few things in config can can be daunting. I think that's where the WCF consultants are really making the earning their keep out there because yeah. it is it is <laughs> complex, I and mean, there's so many so many ways that you can configure. Yeah, and I, I, as long as we're, we're on, the, on the subject of the complexity of WCF, I, I will say that we are trying to take a, a, some of the money out of the uh, WCF consultants' pockets in .NET 4. <laughs> you hear that, Yuval? Uh, yeah. They're after you, man. <laughs> All right, Christian, here we go. <laughs> we've, we've done a few things uh, that you can read about on our blogs to improve the, the config simplification, make config look a little bit more like you would expect from an ASP.NET point of view as far as inheritance and things like that, as well as work a little bit on the tooling to make uh, the creation of WCF services and the config editing experience a little bit better. I was just going to say, are there are there good wizards coming and UI and things like that? We uh, wizards will be next. Uh, we don't have wizards uh, yet, um, but we certainly have uh, uh, made some simplifications and config modifications themselves. And if you look at the uh, the tooling that we ship. Um, in config editors, you can expose all the parameters fairly easily, so you don't have to worry about hand editing any of the config anymore. Mm. It's just you know trying to understand what all those different knobs mean right. is still still some of the difficulty. Well, and that that'll always be a challenge, I, I imagine. Yeah, but with a wizard, I believe, as you note, and, and and we are investing in this also, wizards will help with that too. Right, translated into human terms. What exactly are you trying to do here? Um, getting back to OData for a, a minute, that's sort of just a little bomb we dropped on people, but. Um, uh, pretty widespread support uh, coming anyway. Um, what are some of the technologies that are adopting at a SharePoint? As you said, SQL Server 2008 R2, uh, PowerPivot, Azure Table Storage, and even WebSphere Extreme Scale, right? Are there others that are not on that list that I've missed? Yeah, there, well, there's, uh, let's see, we have clients, we've implemented a number of different clients for it. So there's a Java client that uh, you can get. For, uh, from Microsoft, there's a PHP client, and then uh, an AJAX client, and then of course the .NET client. Um, we're also uh, one of the ones that uh, we're really looking forward to coming up later on uh, this spring is uh, a number of the different uh, data sources that we have in Live will be enabled through OData. So we're working with the Live team to expose that. One of the things I always liked about Astoria, where I, I really thought it was the intersection point of where data access was going, was that it supported uh, speaking to SQL Server and speaking to SQL Azure. I mean, those two things together seem very compelling, that minimal code change. It's basically just a configuration change, and I'd be writing my data to the cloud rather than writing it to my local database. That's right. Uh, and one of, the, and I, one of the things that we're seeing now, I think we're, we're seeing this most with SharePoint because... Uh, with SharePoint 2010, the interface for programming against an on-premise install of SharePoint and a cloud-hosted install of SharePoint is uh, is both OData, both uh, Data Services API. So I can write that code the same way, uh, whether it's going on-prem or off-prem. And if I can do that and start to mix in a bunch of different servers so I can program against an on-prem or off-prem SQL Azure or SQL Server install or a SharePoint install and get consistency and coherency across the APIs that I'm using for for all of those, and I can mix and match between servers and between their location, whether they're hosted or local. That's a pretty powerful thing, we believe. Yeah, absolutely. This whole idea of just seamlessly shifting between these different things. Uh, I the the that Excel pivot table I've been looking at it because it looks like it's going to be Microsoft's answer to business intelligence clients as well. So the O data thing sort of catches me by surprise because now it could consume pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. That's right. 
The okay. good OData client is uh, is RIA Services is going to start exposing OData with our hopefully with our next drop here. Wow! Right. So now I could literally go to an, a, a Silverlight app and use Excel to get at the Silverlight's backend service. Yep, yep. It's very easy to when you write that Silverlight app just to enable OData, and then yeah, I can hit it from Excel or from any of the uh, OData clients. And off it goes. So is is the main attraction of uh, the Open Data Protocol that it can use both AtomPub and JSON or does it give you anything above and beyond that? I mean, when I first heard about it, it's like, okay, and yet another data protocol. Don't we have enough of these already, guys? But what is it about OData that that is so uh, attractive? Well, I, I do think uh, a big piece of it is it's, it's uh, really just pulling together a number of concepts that already exist out there. It, it, it tries to not invent a lot of new, just really combining uh, combining a lot of existing stuff in a slightly novel way. Um, but I think the, the two biggest things that I see when I talk to people about it are, one is we've managed to align a lot of um, the Microsoft platform behind it, whether you're talking about servers or, or clients, um, having a kind of a one-stop place where you can, um, you, you know, ecosystem where you can participate and be able to, uh, make your data all available uh, to Excel, Excel, and other clients, um, or likewise on the server side, being able to consume all sorts of different data. That's, I think, one of the most compelling pieces. And then the other is that it's a it's a pretty simple uh, way to get at the data. There's not a lot of um, overhead to getting to getting up and going. We've we've tried to be really lenient in how you. Uh, how much you can participate so that, you know, the bar for getting into the game is as simple as having a an RSS feed. And then if you want, if you're able to produce more complicated uh, feeds, then you can get, you know, more interesting scenarios to work. But the, the bar to get in is very low. And is it as attractive to non-Microsoft-centric shops as well? I mean, I see we were talking about the Java client, the PHP client, the Ajax client. And on the server side, WebSphere, I mean, that's pretty as non-Microsoft as it gets. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, like, the, the track record is going to be the best evidence there. You know, we, we didn't really, um, I didn't go ask the WebSphere team to do that. In fact, I, I found out about it on, somebody sent me a YouTube video of the WebSphere guys talking about how they had implemented it. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, their motivation was, uh, the motivation they described in their video was, Kind of exactly what we we were looking for, which was a way to really open up a lot of that information and and enable systems to start uh, interacting and integrating their data in a way that um, typically isn't possible today because the, the applications tend to silo the data today. And if we're using um, if you're using WCF data services, are we still able to use our WS Star stack? In the let's say .NET four timeframe, if you, if you've kind of uh, uh, built a bunch of WCF data services or Astoria services today, um, you have to make some modifications in order to kind of get them exposed uh, interoperably through WS Star. However, given the um, you know encapsulation of the business logic, that's that's fairly easy. Um, the interesting kind of uh, dissonance between uh, WS Star, if you will, and kind of a resource-based approach is not really. The, the the protocol per se, but basically how you write your application, hmm. and, and when you uh, when you approach an application based on resources, that's that's quite a different way of thinking than approaching an operation based approaching an application based on operations. And normally, what you see with with WS Star is an operation based approach, and with um, uh, WCF data services is, is resource based uh, approach. Now, oftentimes applications have a little bit of both, and right. so the nice thing about uh, getting these all under one uh, uh, stack is that you can write part of your application and expose your resources, and part of your application uh, uh, operation based. If you start um, with the WCF service, uh, in time you'll be able to take and expose that WCF service uh, uh, with an OData head, if you will, and depending upon how much of um, the OData protocol that your WCF service inherently has, you'll be able to buy into as much of the, the OData ecosystem as, as you as you can. Okay. 
Now, doesn't Google have something similar to this called G data? Uh, they do. Um, we've we've started conversations with them about these and are looking to engage with them on uh, ways that we can uh, kind of bring the two things together. Yeah, because they're both sort of Atom Pub subscription te- technologies, right? Interesting. You know, once again, it kind of goes back to that. A, a lot of this stuff isn't stuff that we really invented. It's uh, really kind of leveraging a a movement that's going on out there in general, which is right. uh, related to Atom Pub and HTTP. Yeah, but I mean, we're it's we're we're trying to create a standard here, right? It's I don't want to say ODBC because that's like poison. Uh, <laughs> but the joke that it comes to my mind is how many Microsoft engineers that take to change a light bulb? None. They just make darkness the standard. <laughs> ah. Very so that's good. true. I mean, the the W3C is pushing several other stacks for open link data, right? I mean, this isn't the only one out there. That's right. And uh, so, you know, the first step we've done along those lines is we took the, when we announced OData, we took the specs that we had created and released them under the open specification promise just to let people know that our intent really is to encourage broad adoption um, we're right now we're doing a number of other things that you'll see over the next several months coming out. Uh, the, the spec as it exists today is fairly large. Uh, it's like 200 and something pages. And so we're in the process of factoring it into more consumable chunks that people can, uh, can work with that, uh, are consistent with what I was saying about kind of the pay to play model where you, you choose a piece that you're interested in that makes sense for your app. You don't have to implement the whole spec. You can just implement parts and then participate. And we're definitely, uh, you know, uh, open to taking OData to standards bodies and are kind of going through the process right now of uh, of engaging with with partners and with uh, our rep- our reps, the different people at Microsoft that uh, work in the standards bodies to figure out kind of the right timing on on uh, when and how to do that, and I think I think you can see this this uh, O data openness is part of a push in .NET for over the last decade to make .NET itself a more open platform, uh, both through standards uh, and and other means. Um, WS Star, of course, is, was the first example of that, and we still invest heavily in making sure that our implementations of WS Star are are standard and interoperable with all the major players uh, in the industry, so that you're not um, you know, you can build an application that communicates with WebSphere or Oracle or SAP or Sun um, or WSO2, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's just one of those things where it seems so apparent that we need this, and yet somehow we've just gotten by without it. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I'll tell you, the um, like one of the biggest uh, resource one of the biggest things that my team spends our resources on is really keeping up with the number of partner and customer conversations around helping them integrate it into their products. Like it's, it's really the response has been overwhelming in terms of the kind of the opportunity uh, that we've hit upon here. And it's, it's really been kind of an organic thing. Uh, I don't know how it's, you know, been that we've gotten by so long without it showing up, but uh it does seem to hit a sweet spot for those cases where you're, what you're about is um, exposing and interacting with resources. Um, speaking of that, what is the Microsoft Open Specification Promise? Let's see. In, in 10 words or less, go. <laughs> Just in general. The intent of the OSP is um, we want to promise uh, customers that we won't make, we won't assert any uh, Microsoft necessary claims against a customer that makes or uses or sells or offers for sale uh, the spec that we describe under the OSP. Okay. So it, it helps them, um, it tells you that, hey, this spec is something we want you to be able to go use for whatever purposes you want to use it. And we won't issue patent claims or enforce patent claims uh, uh, saying that you would you infringe on our patents or, or our other intellectual property rights uh, by using these specs. Uh, there have been cases, and I'm going to leave company names out, but it's not Microsoft. But there's definitely been cases where 
sort of APIs have been published with fairly open rules for using them. And then three years down the road, the rules change and, and destroy somebody's business. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So this is just a way for you guys to say very clearly, hey, if we put this under the OSP, it means we're not going to do this to you. It's wide open. Do what you want. That's right. It's yeah. The the OSP, the Open Specification Promise, is described uh, at ms.com/slash/interop/slash/OSP. Uh, and so I I don't want to, you know. Yeah, we we're not going to paraphrase it here. It's it's paraphrase just paraphrase it. I, yeah. But I'd recommend people go look at it, and uh, the intent, though, really is to to encourage broad adoption of the specs that we put under that promise and right. and let people know that we want them to go do that and that they can do that without um, without a worry that they're going to be infringing on our rights. It's one of the many mechanisms that Microsoft uses to kind of make .NET more open and interoperable. You know, you mentioned the W3C earlier, and we, we definitely participated in it heavily. We also participate in Oasis as well as WSI to work with other companies to kind of uh, – document and kind of sign up for interoperable uh, protocols. And again, it's it's not more, it's it's less about API and more about protocol in general. Okay. Yeah, it makes sense. It makes sense in the protocol context because, well, Adam Pub isn't, is an open standard anyway, right? It's amazing how, it seems like it's it's been neglected, but it's used in a lot of places. It's the alternative to RSS, right? Yeah. And it's, it's really the only thing we have under the OSP are the extensions that we've added because as you say, you know, Atom Pub and HTTP are just general standards out there, and we're yeah, they're out there using them as they exist. Yeah, that was the whole point. So the fact that you added to it and said, "Here's how we've done the additions, and we're not going to protect this." Well, we're going to follow the OSP rules. Let's not say it not protected. Is it? I just took a quick glance through OSP, and it's sort of, uh, "Hey, you don't get anything from us. We don't get anything from you." Kind of thing over that. Yeah, you know, we we really just applied things to those standards. So, for example. Um, some some of the systems that you might go against, like if you're going against a database, would support optimistic concurrency. So right. what we did was we we mapped we created a we created a way to map um, optimistic concurrency in with e tags. So you can use e tags to uh, get concurrency. And what that does is systems that already understand e tags don't have to come up with a new mechanism for uh, for doing concurrent. Uh, optimistic current updates against their database. Cool. And so it's really just, you know, applying, kind of taking some of the, the goodness that's out there and just applying it to this domain. Right. Yeah, and you get things like, you know, proxies participate and all of the standard HTTP caching that you might have in an organization or the, the firewall support and all that kind of stuff just continues to work. And uh, it's really nice when you can take, uh, you know, your data and... Uh, run it through the same infrastructure that you've already got in place. Yeah. But transport a whole other layer of data there. That's what I find is interesting. I mean, e-tags were normally just used to confirm that an image has changed or not for, for caching. This is this is thinking about it at a different level entirely. It's very clever. So uh, what's coming next, guys? Where, yeah. where, where are we going to see this whole thing coming together? I've obviously got a few products already in line. Is there other key products we're going to see in, in play? Well, I mean, one thing we're uh, obviously we're shipping Silverlight Four, which does have and uh, enha- does ship RIA services in there uh, with this OData support. Um, and then I think w- what we're doing, what we're thinking about, kind of longer term, is how can we take some of the innovations we've done in both Astoria and RIA services and plumb those deep into the WCF stack so that so that they can be more widely used. So things like validation or this queryable support, so that any WCF service can have a first-class notion of queryability, or any argument can be validated in the same way that um, RIA services does validation. On the uh, uh, on the WCF side, you'll see in when .NET 4 and Dev 10, uh, Visual Studio 10 is released um, later this year, you'll see a bunch of enhancements to the uh, WHTTP uh, services or REST support for uh, RESTful WCF services, including things like content no- negotiation so you don't have to uh, expose your endpoints uh, differently for different content types, and we'll negotiate that uh, correctly for you. We've also uh, encapsulated a help page, if you will. It's kind of a, a, a poor man's metadata for RESTful services. 
where if you point your um, browser at a uh, RESTful service uh, from WCF, you'll see some code snippets and proxies so that you can go ahead and invoke those things. You'll note that most people who expose things RESTfully have to go and kind of document offline somewhere mm. what the XML looks like when it comes back. Uh, in .NET 4, we'll have, we'll have a mechanism where you don't have to go and you know, write that off to the side somewhere. When you point at that service, you can actually get that back and take a look at it. Um, so you see some enhancements for uh, web HTTP services in, in .NET 4. The other thing to, to kind of throw in the mix here, while it's not a RESTful uh, service at all, we've done quite a bit of work in .NET 4 and Dev 10, which will come out later this year, as I said, in uh, writing services as long-running durable um, workflows. And that's interesting for a number of, number of reasons. One is um, it's a higher level abstraction for writing a, uh, a service. Uh, and it allows durability. You know, these these services can run for for weeks or years and and be you know put away in a database. And also uh, allows a visual experience for creating uh, business logic. So you'll see that in Dev10 as well. Excellent. So guys, can you point us to some resources we can go check this stuff out? Sure. I mean, for RIA services, you can do uh, HTTP Silverlight.net WAC RIA services. Uh, and that's kind of our home for uh, information blogs and whatever about RIA services. Okay. For uh, Windows Communication Foundation and WF, I would just go to the dev centers off of msdn.microsoft.com uh, and look for the Windows WCF and WF uh, development centers. And for the data services uh, resources, I would go to msdn.microsoft.com, WAC data. And then also to learn more about OData, just go to odata.org. Very good. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Plop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website, at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a, a